Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. And today we have a highly impressive guest, not only for his past achievements, but for the fact that he is simultaneously a judge in the District Court of Maryland for Baltimore City and the sitting president of the Maryland State Bar Association. Welcome to the show, Judge Skirty. Bob, thank you so much for having me on your program. You have to have fallen into being bar president at a time that was not the most felicitous in that we kind of haven't had any meetings. Kind of tell us a little bit about how that experience has been. It's been surreal. So my whole game plan for my year, I've been planning for years and years to be bar president. And I just literally had to throw the whole book away and start anew. And we had to figure out how are we going to navigate it in a virtual world? Because we're so used to just attending everything in person, going to meetings and here, you know, dinners and and conferences. So uh, it's been a very interesting year. It's been a very productive and a good year, quite frankly. The state bar, I mean, it's interesting because I sort of accidentally started having MSBA guests on. I had Rena Shaw on quite recently, who's an amazing person. And at least as a member of the Maryland State Bar Association for 40 years, it doesn't occur to me all the stuff that's going on up there. You know, I'm in my own little trial lawyer world. But there's all kinds of facets to the Maryland State Bar Association that I think the public doesn't know about. Absolutely. And and we have brought a number of affiliate organizations. So, for example, the Maryland State Bar Association created the Pro Bono Resource Center. And, you know, they are an independent. Now, let me just stop you. I apologize. Not all our listeners will know what that means. What is the Pro Bono Resource Center? Why is it good and what does it do? Sure. So the Pro Bono Resource Center is the pro bono arm of the Maryland State Bar Association. It was created to train lawyers to take on pro bono cases. Which means uh, free. For free. People yeah, that yeah. can't afford legal services. And that organization has flourished for over 30 years. It's done quite well. We also created another organization, which is called My Law. It's the, we call the educational arm of the Maryland State Bar. And that organization helps the youth, our juveniles. So they work with teen court, for example, as a diversionary program to keep young kids out of the juvenile system. But we also do, they do moot court where they will do mock hearings from high school competitions around the state. And the winning two teams will go up before the Court of Appeals and actually have their cases heard by sitting Court of Appeal judges. And just a phenomenal experience for these young folks. And then the third piece of that is also we have law links, which they do promote young kids going into law firms and working as a an intern for the summer and just to experience the professional world. And we had a number of success stories, but Alicia Wilson, who is very well known at Hopkins Attorney now, she has started out as a Law Links student in high school. And she was just inspired by the law and she rose to you know her notoriety that she is now. Just Sounds like she's a future effort. guest candidate for me. I think she would be amazing because she's also worked with the Locust Point development with Sagamore and Kevin sure. Blank in that group. So I read somewhere in an online biography that you are a bar association junkie, which I gather means you are an enthusiastic proponent of bar associations. From what does that originate? So when I first started in law, when I graduated from law school, I was involved in law school in some associations, and that kind of piqued my interest because I felt that getting involved was a good way of 
making change, whatever the issue might have been. And back in those days, it was a lot of LGBT issues. And I know we'll talk about that a little bit later, but that kind of motivated me more. And then I got involved with the Bar Association of Baltimore City, and I really enjoyed the people that I met. I got to really get to know judges you know, who I would be in front of. And they got to know me and my reputation. And I got a lot of referrals from the Bar Association. I found it's felt good to do good work. Uh, we would do charity work for different organizations, pro bono work. I just, it was just amazing. And we also had an opportunity to influence the legislators in Annapolis. And I rose up the ranks with the city bar, became city bar president, and I decided that wasn't enough. And I moved over to the Maryland State Bar and felt that I could, on a more grander scale, really help to promote the MSBA professionalism, civility, and the good work that lawyers do across the state. So we have an impending bar conference, I think in June, is that right? It is June 9th to the 11th. It's a 100% virtual. Last year, we canceled the in-person meeting because of COVID, and we had a one-day conference, if you will, for the business meeting when I became president. But this year, we felt coming off of the heels of last November, we had a legal excellence week, which was all virtual for a week in November. And it was highly successful. Over 900 attorneys participated in the events throughout the week. And we took that model and we're putting it into the virtual. We have this year, we've got over 80 programs with eight different tracks, meaning a track for somebody's interested in personal injury or somebody's interested in criminal law or administrative law. They can follow those programs throughout the week. We have some fun events planned during the week and some incredible keynote speakers that will be participating Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of that week, June 9th to the 11th. So tantalize some of our guests. Who are the incredible keynote speakers? Well, I'm glad you asked. So uh, kicking off our keynotes will be former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Just is that all? Nominal woman. I mean, as we know her history and her background, she was the first female Secretary of State appointed under Bill Clinton. Followed after her is Nina Totenberg, who's the American legal affairs correspondent for National Public Radio. And we had them scheduled last year, and they were gracious to be able to carry it over to this year. So I'll be doing some interviewing. It'll be interesting, me interviewing Nina Totenberg. So That's I know. Very exciting. Very cool. Very, very cool. We also have, we just confirmed a conversation with Tina Chen. Tina is the CEO of a company called Times Up. They work with victims of sexual harassment. And her background is very interesting. She's former chief of staff to Michelle Obama and was the assistant to President Barack Obama in the White House. So she's got an incredibly impressive background. In addition, we just confirmed. This is literally within the last hour, Bob, Amy Koblachar. So she, we are thrilled beyond belief. She knows she's a senator and former presidential candidate. And we were really excited to confirm that she will be speaking as well. And then our final keynote we have is a gentleman by the name of Robert Glazer. He's the CEO of a company called Acceleration partners, and author of a book called How to Thrive in the Virtual Workplace, which is very timely given what many law firms have had to convert to in a virtual world. So that is a natural segue into how is it being a judge in the COVID era? 
So, you know, the courts went through some transition trying to figure out how do we provide access to justice. Uh, we never shut down our bail reviews. Those always continued, although they were being done virtual through video. We would go into work every day and we had very limited dockets, but of course all the per personal protective equipment was up. We had plexiglass in front of each of the benches and social distancing. And eventually as we moved into different phases, more people in different types of dockets would continue and resume. What has been really interesting is I was tasked with creating a remote docket for some of what we call the citations. So if somebody gets a parking ticket, or a red light camera ticket or a speeding camera in Baltimore City. We created through a team of my colleagues a 100% remote docket so these cases could go forward. And in pre-COVID days, we would have maybe 10% of the people would show up. You know, it's a cattle call. 200 people were called to come to court. 10% of those would actually show up. Now, with the virtual hearings on Zoom, we're getting an 85 to 90% appearance rate, which is phenomenal. It just tells you that this we're giving people access to the courts, access to have their case heard, and they don't have to take off a half a day of work. And one of the interesting phenomena about this is that we have found that people that usually get these types of citations, the parking tickets, red light camera, are not from Baltimore City. They're from outside of Baltimore, where they've come into our city to go to a venue, see a, a baseball game, or go out to dinner, or go to the Hippodrome. And, you know, they're confused as to about where they can park, or, you know, the streets, et cetera. And they're participating. I actually had one person call in from the Dominican Republic. He happened to have been in Baltimore for the day, ran a red light, and, well, he made a right on turn red, but he didn't stop. And he was in Doctors Without Borders, but he really wanted to have his case heard. So that was that was really a phenomenal, really cool effect. So you could do it by phone in addition to doing it over the web? Yep. They can call in by phone if they don't have internet access or through Zoom. And so these dockets, I think, are going to stay. I think Chief Judge Morrissey's impressed with it. And other jurisdictions are starting to uh, do it. Prince George's County, Montgomery County, Baltimore County because it, it works and we give people two weeks to make payment and we have a hundred percent success rate with regard to that. People are just thrilled to be able to participate. That's a fantastic development because, you know, I'm predominantly a personal injury lawyer and we'll go to district court and they'll have a million cases set up and you can't possibly reach them all. And people will take a half day off of work. Sometimes they take a full day and then they got to come back three or four months later. And I guess the inevitable question is, is there something about the nature of those trials that makes it so you, you couldn't do it over the web or, or how do you feel about that? Sure. I think there are certain types of cases that as a judge, I have to be able to look at the person's facial features and watch them as they talk and just observe their demeanor and just different things that you really, the nuances you can't pick up through a, a Zoom call or over the phone. And I think also as an attorney yourself, being able to judge the credibility of the witness that you have on the stand and be able to cross-examine in a way. And, and just those nuances, I think you lose on Zoom. And, and I think that the in-person is necessary. But 
we're doing a lot of damage only hearings, meaning that the person says, look, I agree it was my fault in the accident in a civil case. Let's just let the judge make the determination as to how much should be awarded. And that is a little bit easier to, because you're not judging the credibility, you're just looking at medical records, listening to the pain and suffering and, and the aspects to make it a, an appropriate award. So one of the other things I read in one of your online biographies is it's a little tricky business going from doing a particular area of work in private practice and then suddenly being confronted with, you know, criminal cases. And I don't know how much personal injury work you did before you took the bench, but all of those things are slightly different beasts. And, and if there is any common complaint I hear about new judges, it's that they don't have a background in whatever it is. And I wondered how you felt about that. How best did you acquire that such that you could do it more accurately and fairly and that sort of thing? No, it's, it's a great question. My background was civil. I did a lot of family law, bankruptcy. I did some personal injury. I had really had virtually little to no experience in the criminal aspect, in the criminal law. But we are all put through a training school, through new judges training provided by the courts for a full week. And you get the sort of the black letter law, the nuts and bolts. And from that, you develop relationships and you sit in dockets, you observe the dockets, and you just bring the, to the bench your skills of being able to manage a docket, manage a, a particular case. And you pick it up. We do a lot of reading of cases. I do a lot of observing and I talk to my colleagues. And you pick up the parts that you're deficient in fairly quickly. On the other side of it, I was one of the first civil attorneys appointed under the O'Malley administration in over 15 years to the city bench. All the other judges were, their background was state's attorneys, so it was all criminal. Public defenders, all criminal. Attorney general, all criminal. Office administrative hearing, which was administrative hearings, MBA and whatnot. So we're seeing, particularly under the Hogan administration, you're seeing a larger pool of judges being pointed from private practice and having sort of that civil and criminal law experience. But we do the best you can, you know, and you try to learn. I've been sitting now seven and a half years, and I found that the criminal was a lot easier for me to pick up. My colleagues who are primarily trained and had practiced only criminal law struggle with the civil because there's so many different aspects of civil law, whether it's landlord-tenant, personal injury, Plevin and Detinue, which, you know, people have to go back to the books and say, what the heck is that? <laughs> so contract law. So there's many, many different aspects of civil practice that's much harder to learn than criminal. So you really, and this is something that we've talked about previously on some of our shows, when we're kind of giving people nuts and bolts of the Maryland court system, but you are really in the frontier court of justice there, that the district court is the court of first resort. There are rights of appeal from the district court. You know, you get to the circuit court, you're dealing with district court appeals and jury trials and matters involving more substantial amounts of money. It's got to be kind of exhausting mastering all the different things that you've just described. Well, it's exciting. So I would say that's a better way to describe it because every day we're presented with different issues and different types of cases. And I, I like volume. I like the ability that we're the court that most Marylanders come in contact with as opposed to the other courts, the circuit or the courts of appeals. But, you know, we have the ability to do justice and 
to give and hand out fair, whether it's a sentence in a criminal matter, and give people opportunities for not repeating their offenses and getting them help with drug court or getting them a job. One of my colleagues developed a reentry program for misdemeanor offenses of folks that to help them get employed and get back out in the community and earn a living. And it has been such a tremendous success because it gives them opportunities. And usually if somebody's got a criminal record, to get a job is a huge impediment. And so this is a way that helps them get back into the working system, earn a paycheck, and become part of the society. And that's been really rewarding. You know, on the other end of the scale, you've got the parking tickets and, and smaller citation type issues. But it's fun. I mean, the probably exhausting part is doing a day of domestic violence hearings. Oh, I'm sure. You just, you hear and see the worst violence that can exist between individuals. And it's just, some of the stories are horrendous and horrible. But to know that you can actually provide some level of protection makes you feel comfortable. And, and these are tough cases. Do you think there are things that the court system could do that it is presently not that would diminish those kinds of cases? You know, we try to offer as many programs that are out there and diversionary programs. We've got the veterans courts to help let people that are going through post-traumatic stress disorder and other types of issues that cause some of the criminal activity, or at least may, may lend to it, whether it be an assault or domestic violence or, or simple theft. And you hope that these programs are providing a more holistic approach to help the person, not just with, deal with the one issue that's in front of us, but looking beyond that and see if they need, whether it's mental health treatment or drug treatment or, or even alcohol treatment. So I think we see a movement across the courts to really start emphasizing that more. One of the things that has come out of COVID that's been very positive is because our caseloads have been reduced substantially, we have more time to look and provide these opportunities for folks. Whereas before, you're just processing next case, next case, next case, and you're not really able to kind of evaluate, are there options here that this person may benefit from? So do you think expanding the bench would help in that regard? In other words, if you doubled the number of judges, even if this huge case flow comes back in, it would seem to me that that would accomplish some of that. I think that, you know, expansion is always one option. And we have 28 judges on our bench, and we're the largest jurisdiction in the district court. But, you know, having more judges, we would need more courtrooms and more courthouses and gives people more options of accessibility. So there's a lots of complications to it. I think that having greater resources of programs made available and educating the public defenders, educating private counsel, educating the prosecutors to try to get folks into these diversionary programs earlier on in the system. Sometimes it's it might be a little too late in the process. And, you know, I think that trying to get them steered in the right direction earlier in the preventative part helps get people from coming into court later on. I mean, I wonder if interventions at the juvenile level is the main formula for, you know, preventing an awful lot of things. Sure. You know, I'm very concerned about the youth in Baltimore in particular. We're seeing a rise on the number of young people with guns 
and the guns on the street are, are very alarming to me. And you have to look, look back at that individual. What role models have they had? Why do they have guns? And most of the time, the, the answers that we get are they have guns to protect themselves. And it's sad to know that a 15, 16-year-old feels the need they need a gun to protect themselves for their own safety. I wish I had a better idea what solutions. I, I do think the state bar really makes a vigorous effort in so many ways to serve community needs that people aren't really aware of. But it, it's a tricky, it's a tricky world. Well, one of the other organizations the State Bar created was the Access to Justice Commission. And you mentioned Rena Shaw, who's the executive director, who's phenomenal. And with the commission, Attorney General Frosch created the COVID task force with the Access to Justice Commission. And that commission has looked at the housing instability and insecurity. And they came out with a number of recommendations to the legislature and to the executive branch and also to the judges. We did a program last week at our judicial conference where I interviewed Brian Frosch, I had Rena Shaw and Senator Jill Carter. And we talked about the recommendations to the judiciary that we can implement to help really provide this access to justice in post-COVID as we emerge from the COVID pandemic. So yes, absolutely. Seems like there is going to be a landlord-tenant tidal wave. And that's one of the things Rena and I were talking about is this notion of having sort of an equivalency to the public defender's office for the purposes of civil cases involving landlord-tenant matters. That she said statistically there was some, you know, 85 or 90 percent of the defendants in landlord-tenant cases, the tenants, have some basis for a defense. And that's wholly unrealized because they can't afford lawyers. wonder what you think about something like that. Well, Baltimore City passed the right to counsel. So that was signed by Mayor Scott last year. It goes into effect, I believe, this July. And that's going to be an interesting model to watch. It's modeled after San Francisco and New York City, which also has right to counsel, that is, and I think also Philadelphia. It's true that when an attorney is present during a court proceeding, the attorney has to be able to, the ability to communicate to the court what the issues are and identify the issues in a way that a layperson trying to represent themselves cannot. It's not about intelligence. It's about understanding the system, knowing what buzzwords to use, when to raise them and how to raise them. And it does allow for an individual who comes into court to have their issues presented properly and also to work out a resolution with the landlord. So we have found that with the pro bono attorneys through Pro Bono Resource Center, day of court. They come into court in the morning. They announce that we're present and they'll talk to a number of litigants and tenants and they'll represent them day of trial. We also offer mediation services. So I think that these are all ways to help folks to be able to come into court in a way and try to resolve it early on. When you look at 600,000 filings a year of failure to pay rent cases, and you have about 65,000 total evictions, about a little, little more than 10%. The other cases didn't go to eviction for a number of reasons. Either they were worked out, the tenant paid, or the tenant moved. It seems like a sort of tantalizing bit of the problem that ends up with 15 and 16-year-olds feeling like they need guns, too. If you have so much insecurity in your life, it, it makes it for a pretty tricky landscape. It's tough. I mean, just... This year has been very difficult for many, many people. And 
understanding the CDC orders coming out and the executive executive orders from the governor's office and trying to navigate that. Even for us, you know, we're reading the orders that are coming out and trying to figure out, okay, what can we do? What can't we do? What should we be doing? And I can only imagine what it's like for an individual who hasn't been trained in the law and, and really cannot understand their options. So one of the things that stands out in your biography is that you have historically performed a lot of services for LGBTQ Marylanders. And one of the things that interested me was about estate planning. And of course, you know, we think of estate planning. I'm married to somebody. You know, I want to set this up in my kids. And, and you realize what an extraordinarily recent development, at least in Maryland, that is for LGBTQ people. It's amazing. When I first started this, I had the largest LGBT law firm in Maryland, and if usually within the tri-state region. We had an office in Northern Virginia and D.C. as well, and we were doing it when no one else was touching it. And at one point, we calculated to have a relationship as closely aligned with a marriage with the rights, responsibilities, liabilities, and protections. You needed 66 documents, legal documents, to be created. And eventually that has weathered down to, you know, minimum amount because with marriage equality coming into play and the acceptance of, of marriages by the Supreme Court nationwide, it's been a lot easier. But you can imagine the difficulties of traveling from state to state where, you know, I was married back in 2007, 2011. I had a civil union, a marriage. My one marriage was annulled by the state of California, you know, to, and it was all to the same person, you know, so we're just trying to have a, a marriage here recognized. But we would travel to Virginia and we were deemed to be separate individuals and our marriage was not recognized. So these are nuances that you have to deal with. And if you throw children into the equation, it's exponentially more complicated. And one of the things I was most proud of before I got appointed to the bench was a case we took up to the Court of Appeals that provided for two women who had gone to California, got married, and they tried to get divorced in Prince George's County, and the judge refused to acknowledge their marriage. And so it was appealed. We took it up on appeal, and the Court of Appeals, through Judge Harrell's written opinion, seven to zero, said, yes, we've recognized this out-of-state marriage for all legal purposes because it was legally performed in a state that was legal. That was California. And that made all of the you know tens of thousands of Marylanders who got married in Massachusetts or California or other states, their marriages became instantly valid and recognized in Maryland. That was huge. And that was right before the referendum was passed to allow for people to get married in Maryland. So it's been fascinating and wonderful to see this evolution of LGBTQ law emerge over the years. And that was where a lot of my passion was. Well, you see what narrow margins there were in the Supreme Court. And you just, it's something that seemed incomprehensible to me at the time. But obviously, there are groups of people that have very strong feelings that run counter to what seems obvious to me. How did you react when the Okerfeld decision came out? It was very emotional, extremely emotional, because it finally you feel like there's a validation from your highest court, recognizing you, your spouse, your husband, your partner, in a relationship is equal to everyone else. And with that, 1,100 federal laws automatically now apply to me, automatically. 280 state laws apply to me because of the recognition of that one word 
marriage in our, you know, in our, in our country. And it was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Do you worry about the present Supreme Court regressing in some way? I don't. I don't. Because, look, you know, the court has a lot of precedent that they have to rely on. And I think there's a strong respect for what's called stare decisis, presidential law, the cases that have been decided. Unless they make a determination that it is so wrong they need to overturn it and go in a different direction, I don't see that happening. In addition, the ramifications of that are going to be huge. Because, you know, to give folks rights and then take them away in different pieces, I don't see the court doing that. At least I would hope not, even with the current makeup of the Supreme Court. So I know I have to wind things up, but I have to ask you one thing. How fun was it to go back and give the commencement speech at your law school? Well, actually, I'm giving it on June oh, 19th. it's coming up. Okay. It's coming up. Yes. It got canceled last year, but it'll be That's what it June was. 19th, which I am excited about. So I've been polishing the finishing touches of my speech. I'll be giving it to the class of 20 and class of 21. Wow. It'll be at the Towson Arena. So it'll be an in-person event. And I am super psyched about it. <laughs> I saw that and I just chuckled to myself. They'll never have me back at the University of North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, I'd really like to thank you, Mark, for a wonderful show today. I hope we can get you back sometime. Very happy to, Bob. It's been a pleasure, I hope, and I appreciate the time and covering a lot of the different topics. I hope that Maryland attorneys will come to our annual meeting, June 9th to the 11th, 100% virtual, and it's it's good value for, uh, for the registration fee. I'll be there. Excellent. We look forward to it. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell and stay safe connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.